This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones. I am not broadcasting from the beautiful west side of Oahu today. I am coming from an undisclosed location somewhere in Washington, D.C. I am in Stephen K. Bannon's The War Room, and that is because Steve Bannon is our guest. And uh, so it's a great privilege for us to have uh, Steve on the show. When I founded this podcast two years ago, I told you my goal is to try to be winsome, funny, and entertaining. And when you're not paying attention, I'm going to talk to you about the Uyghur or the Yazidi uh, or battles to defend the Nuba in the mountains of Sudan. And that's what we have been doing. And, uh, but a man who I have admired, a man who I saw as really our greatest warrior, I say he's like the 47 Ronin, him and his team, that they came back to save the day out of nowhere. People thought, where did they go? Uh, they've abandoned their Lord. Here they come. It's the 47 Ronin. Uh, so St- Steve Bannon is someone I admire um, because Rene Girard says, when you stand in solidarity with the vulnerable, you become as vulnerable as they are. When you stand with the scapegoat of the age, you become indistinguishable from the, the mob, that, from the scapegoat. When the mob looks at you, they see the scapegoat. And so when you see the persecution that Steve Bannon had to face, first with the doxing and the attacks in the media, and then with the weaponizing of the law, what you're seeing is what happens when you stand with the vulnerable. Rene Girard says, to stand with the vulnerable, you become vulnerable. And that's actually the motto of our show. Be vulnerable. Steve Bannon, welcome to the show. I couldn't think of a better person. In a winsome show, I couldn't think of a better guest to have than me. So, yeah, you're so winsome, I'm, I'm, low, low, I'm low on winsome. But no, uh, you've spent a lot of time in this location with uh, Andrew Breitbart and the, uh, you know, we've been here, I don't know, 12 years now. Uh, no, no, not that long. 10 years, 10 years. Been here 10 years. And um, you were the friend, the first guys that, 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 that came. Back in those days, you were, you were in um, Hawaii and a filmmaker. And one of Andrew's uh, earliest, I still remember the first time he introduced me to you. It was in the, it was in the kitchen in the embassy. And, uh, you know, you and Andrew together are, incredibly large individuals <laughs> so you'd like took up the entire kitchen so it was uh it was uh amazing i think you were here as an all-nighter uh listening to andrew tell stories and you were swapping stories with him it was i think at dawn you know i think we had louis gomert and uh and a bunch of guys here but it was extraordinary so welcome back uh it's a privilege to be here and you know i i miss andrew i'm sure as you do every day he's one of those people who you don't you feel his presence like you don't feel he's left he's here and uh, a beautiful hero. I actually had met you twice before that. You didn't remember. The first time we met was a big producer friend of mine in Hollywood. Uh, uh, I'll say his name. Steve McAvity introduced oh, us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. said, you got to meet this guy. Same, same when I met Andrew. People are like, you got to meet Andrew Breitbart. You got to meet Andrew Breitbart. And I had the image of, in those days of some computer geek, some small little computer because he was running Drudge and he, he was, was running, running Drudge. his own site, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know he was Andrew yeah. Breitbart. Yeah. And then so Steve Bannon was, I mean, uh, Matt, and, and Andrew was, Andrew was, uh, the reason he was so unique, he was a man's man, right? Yeah. And he had 
he was an idiot savant when it came to social, uh, to so, what then was emerging social media and how people access the news. He was just an absolute genius. Helped really take drudge to where it was at the top of its game. Launched the Huffington Post. Uh, you know, launched his own site. Built a new, then built the, the Breitbart site you have today. He basically conceived and built that. Um, it was a man's, and he had a very deep understanding of human nature. Right, that's what people are so. I've never seen. It's one of the things you see up close: a charismatic personality that people are just attracted to. At the beginning days of the Tea Party, as you know, we'd go to these conferences, and people just would swarm him. They just wanted to touch him. They just wanted to be in his presence. Right? He had a he had a very special presence. So it was extraordinary to be the, you know, one of his uh, uh, spear carriers and just kind of watch it. Yeah. Well, I didn't. The same experience I had when I met Andrew was when Steve McAvity wanted to introduce me to you, and he said, oh, he's an investment banker from New York. And I was picturing some amateur triathlete. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, I don't want to meet one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do I want to meet those guys, oh. Steve? He, he's like, no, you got to meet them. And I just remember watching the two of you talk. And what, was, what impressed me about you, and you don't remember this, I was writing a book at the time with, Steve, uh, with John Zmirak on genocide, called The Race to Save Our Century. Oh, I remember that. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, so we were talking about the Armenian genocide. Came out later, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was so impressed. And Merrick's a brilliant guy. He, you know, I can't believe I get the privilege to work with him yeah. every day. Oh. It's, it's like he's my own. It's like I've mean, grad, been in graduate school for 15 years working with him. But I was so impressed that your knowledge of, we were talking about the Armenian genocide and how that led to the genocides of the 20th century when the world, I was just on your show and you were talking about, is this the fight? And... You know, what happens if we lose this fight? When the world, and this is what we were talking about that first day we met, you know, if the world would have reacted to the Armenian Greek genocide, there would have never been a Holocaust. There would have never been a Bolshevik revolution. There would have never been the genocides of Stalin and Mao, I believe. And when you fail to hold the line, like the Obama-Biden administration failed to hold the line in Iraq. With the Yazidis and all the different religious groups. Yeah. The, uh, was it the Nineveh Plain? The Nineveh Plain. Nineveh Plain, you knew all those. I mean, the Kurds, the Nineveh Plain, the Christians, yeah. the Nineveh Christians, is it? The mm -hmm. the uh, uh, Armenians, um, or not the, the, um, uh, the Yazidis. I mean, you really introduced those all to the Trump movement and really to the Trump administration. I think a lot of the, the, the whole focus on taking down the physical caliphate of ISIS came from a lot of your work uh, that's a privilege for you to say no no, no i think it did because you 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 eric prince a handful of others right because eric, at, yeah. at the time there was so much remember just um uh discussed with what how iraq had been handled because a lot of people just said hey you know pox on all their houses just went out i think it was the, through the hard work you had people like father keely talked about the you know he's, he's dedicated himself as a number of priests have to about the christians in iraq and about the um, the monasteries and the churches and cathedrals in the Middle East are all been eradicated. Uh, your work with the Yazidis, the work with the Kurds, uh, Nineveh, uh, it just, I think that got, I think it was one of the things that really led then candidate Trump and eventually President Trump to eradicate the understanding how important it was to basically break the physical caliphate, which nobody talks about. In the campaign, I didn't think they did a particularly good job of reminding people that when pr Trump took over, uh, 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 Obama had essentially said this is a generational thing. They had a more organized state. Remember, Syria and, and Iraq were kind of failed states. In the middle, you had the physical caliphate of ISIS, 
had 8 million people actively recruiting in Europe, had, they were taxing, had oil revenues, they had, uh, they were taxing, you know, the wheat production. I mean, they were, they were becoming an organized state if it had not been for Trump actually going in and putting the military, which we did in a smart way, as an organizing feature to destroy that. But that, a lot of that was brought up by, by guys like yourselves highlighting well, what you we have to admi- stake in the region. See, you being in the administration, I was so excited when you were going in because I knew that their interests would be hurt. And not that I want to be a do-gooder trying to help all persecuted peoples in the world. That's not our job as a nation state. But when you break it, you buy it. And those were problems that we caused. And I'll tell you, the Muslim, the, the people in the IDP camps, I was there when Trump won were for Trump before I was. They were crying. Like, they were literally, the Muslim men were cheering, and they said, we will be able to go home. And I remember saying, you heard of this Muslim ban? And this this man in the camp with his son next to him started laughing. And he said, why do you all think we want to go to your country? He said, my family has lived down that road 12 miles for thousands of years. I want to go down that road to my home. Donald Trump will let me go down that road. And then all the other men began to yell, Trump, Trump, Trump. And um, you're right. I, I wondered about that. And also food security. This, this, if this president wasn't president, the world would be starving right now because of the COVID shutdowns. David Beasley from the World Food Program, a Trump loyalist, won the Nobel Prize. I don't know. The world, how, does, how does the world not know David Beasley won the Nobel Prize? And how they not know that, he's, uh, he, he, that President Trump has been at the forefront of that entire issue? I mean, it's just, it's it's one of the things about the 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 not the marketing, but just getting the word out of what his what his work has been, and you see throughout the world. It's one of the reasons that he got, as you said for years, that you could get fifty percent of the Hispanic vote. It was Jason Jones and others kept them and said, "Hey, Eduardo, the, the Eduardo." I said, "Hey, <laughs> the, the Latino Hispanic community culturally may be the most conservative." After the African American community, the two most culturally conservative demographic groups that we have extraordinarily conservative and believe in family, believe in, uh, believe in religion, believe in custom and tradition. They're to the right of you. They're to the right of us. That's what I'm saying. And now that's why you see the self-organizing, what I call the beginning of the great awakening is the self-organizing, uh, events you've had in the campaign campaign had no money, but you know, I was thinking of you when 30,000 Hispanics and Latinos in South Florida have a spontaneous demonstration for an entire Sunday and they're taking cars up and boats and everything like that. And they're and they've all lived under dictatorships in the Caribbean and in Latin America. And they understand they're like the new, new Eastern Europe, right? They say, Hey, we've seen the promises of the cultural, mar- we've seen the promises of the communists and the socialists. We've seen the promises of the dictators. We've seen what cultural Marxism brings you. And we fully, we rejected out of hand. We believe in the family as the basic nuclear unit that, Societies based upon civic society and re rejected out of hand. That's that's the purpose. That's the whole uh, part of this Trump revolution, and that's why the progressive left and the cultural Marxists, the progressive left, have to destroy it. They got to destroy it now, and that's why they've got to steal this election. Because, the, and you can tell how overwhelmingly we won on November third. But this is a coming together of many different disparate ethnicities and and. Uh, and uh, races and um, and uh, and colors and and religions and it's 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 very powerful. I mean, you summed it up. We had it on the show today, you know, what you talked about the core basis of the Judeo-Christian West and what the core basis and reason it attracts. I see this in my work 
with China. I'm, mo- my, most of my focus is on taking down the CCP and working with nations like India and nationalists in Japan and India and other places uh, with the, the uh, diaspora of the Chinese, the 100 million Chinese that, throughout the world, and, and really going into the to, to make sure that our show and the shows we do break through the firewall into the CCP. And what stunned me, the thing that they, they, they grab onto is the unalienable rights, that your rights come from God, that these rights, there's no state. That Remember, there's 5,000 or 10,000 years of kind of Chinese imperial rule. We say about this election, one of the reasons we have such a big viewership is that, um, and we did a eight or 10 hour, uh, you know, election night coverage with GTV and G News is that it's the most important election in American history, the American Republic, as the military officers that supported Trump wrote in that, that letter that's most important in the history of the Republic. Well, it's also the most important in 5,000 years of Chinese history. This is the most important Yo, election. That, it's, and, and that resonates with them. You know, my wife them. is Chinese. And yeah, that, this, this you, resonates with them. And, 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 they, the and the it's un, inalienable rights that come from God is something, when they see that in the Declaration of Independence and see it codified in the Constitution, it so grabs them because they're taught the exact opposite, that everything comes from the state, that the state deems, the emperor deems, or the state apparatus deems what you are. And to know that, and that, that the way you describe it is, is very powerful. And I think it's one of the reasons that you're seeing people come together around this Trump movement. Well, I want to um, bring it back to you for a second, Steve, sure. because most people, they don't know you. They know a, a meme that's been created. This is who Stephen K. Bannon the is. The Darth Vader. The Darth Vader. And that's why when I wrote that article, I kind of dig, I I dig. I know, I kind of, and dig I know you dig it. No, <laughs> you, you get it. You get no, it. I was, your article was great, but it was, as you know, I'm not one to really open up like that. But it was. Well, I want you to open up now because yeah. here's the deal. Yeah. Um, you like the president? Didn't need this. You, I, I, you know, I got involved with this when my high school girlfriend's dad forced her to have an abortion when I was 17, and I was in basic training. I don't know if you know that. And then yeah. that's what kind of radicalized me to the vulnerable. And, and so I feel like I had no choice. I say, and I've been trying to save the world to save my family, save my children, save my posterity. But you're sort of in a position where you could care for your, and shelter your children and posterity for generations. You're kind of in that position, right? As is the president. You didn't have to go all in for the nation. You could have been like the rest of the, the elite and scrambled for yourself. And that poor Hunter Biden email where he's basically saying to his dad, enough already, can we stop? That email was heartbreaking. Very powerful. What was your inciting, you're a filmmaker. What was the call to adventure for Steve Bannon? What was the inciting incident that set you on this journey? That you, well, you, you know, I come, from, I come from a blue collar family, Kennedy Democrats, you know, Irish Catholic, uh, Kennedy Democrats, working class. And uh, we've always been a blue collar working class family. I think of the extended family, 85%. Or eighty percent are not college graduates. They're 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 working men and women, and fantastic, just a classic, you know, Irish clan. And um, really, the 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 event that, that triggered it because I was in Hollywood and making films, and always you know served as a naval officer, and had my daughter go to. She went to West Point and was with the hundred first. She went to Iraq during the Obama administration. Really, the thing was the financial crisis of 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 two thousand. Two things happened in that about thirty days. Uh, time frame in 2008. One, I was in uh, China. I'd owned business over there. I was kind of basically living in Shanghai and went to the Summer Olympics and the opening ceremony. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, wow, you know, this Chinese Communist Party is really 
not just ascendant. They, they, they are, they're going to become a hegemon. And, and their system of totalitarian rule, they look to make everybody a tributary state. And I don't think anybody in the United States is awake to this. But more importantly, I'm sitting there and all of our elites are over there feeding at the trough. That was one. And then number two, 30 days later, he had the financial implosion on September 15th of the, of the, the financial crisis that essentially, and people forget this, John McCain and Sarah Palin were up by a point over Barack Obama on the day that Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy. Seeing how the elites bailed themselves out and how they took care of themselves and wiped out everybody else. My dad at the time was uh, almost 90 years old. He's 99 today. The um, but he, he, you know, he's a working class guy for the phone company for 50 years, just a, a basically a lineman for the phone company and with no college degree and just high school became a, a, a lower level white collar, you know, kind of a foreman type. But to see that they all got wiped out, right? The stocks imploded and, you know, they were all told that they got to sell to get cash. And uh, it's kind of your thing of the reverse mortgage. They he needed cash, so he sold all the stuff. And just seeing how the elites took care of themselves during that financial crisis and whether you're Hispanic or African-American or white working class, you basically got, so that thing of the rise of China and the elites tied to that. And you could see that during that summer Olympics coupled with within 30 days of that, we had the financial implosion and how the elites took care of themselves. I really said, you know, what's going to save this country. You need a, you know, as a big Reagan Republican as national defense, but the connection that was never made was that it's got to be much more populist in nature, much more nationalistic in nature. And then right after that was the rise of the Tea Party. And that's how I met. So in this, it was in the fall of 2008 and in early 2009, I'd always, I'd been introduced to Andrew Breitbart in my filmmaking and yeah. knew he was a big Hollywood guy. And you guys, so I, but I was still a filmmaker, but then really met Andrew as really a news guy and a guy that was really leading a social movement. Andrew and people maybe not realize this, but Andrew was one of the foundational elements of the Tea Party movement. And the Tea Party movement was the precursor to the Trump, to the Trump movement, so many of the elements uh, from of the Trump movement were were based on Tea Party elements of it. Andrew was key to that, and so that's kind of the the beginning inciting incident. Really, was the August September of two thousand eight. So the inciting incident is experiencing an injustice or witnessing an injustice. Yeah, so you're witnessing yeah. an injustice the, against the American. The well, the class. working, you know, the Chinese call it uh, Lao Beijing, old hundred names. That's their kind of the little guy, right? It's like in. Um, Lord of the Rings, you have the hobbits. And, and McCain uses as a as a derogatory term, but uh, Tolkien, right, the Inklings, the Oxford crowd, when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, uh, the reason the Shire was, was from that area of rural England that he was from. And he was an officer in the trenches in World War I, and it changed his life. And the one thing he saw is that the English working class, the guys on the farm, we're the backbone of the English or the British Army in the trenches against these kind of mechanized. Ah, so the hobbits were the working class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why he had such a great love for the Shire. That's why he, the Shire was always about his home. They had had this, you know, these estates out in the countryside of, of you know, the uh, the Oxford Shires or the Cotswolds, things like that. This And the people that worked the farm or, or worked the estates, and, and where they were the hobbits. And he knew as a young kid that they were the ones that really made so they un, they were the underpinnings of civic society, and the Shire was good because they were had common decency. And the and the and the, and the Mordor is the trans. It's the world homogenized state. Well, exactly, and and they were kind of the Huns and the hugely mechanized. Remember, he had some horrific experiences in the trenches as a young officer, 
in, in World War One, And so the, the hobbits and the deplorables and Lao Beijing, what the Chinese called old hundred names, because they're basically a hundred last names in, in China. It, they're all uh, the gilets jaunes, right? The yellow vests. They're all kind of this working class folks that are the basics of civic society. It's like my dad. He's, he's, the, he's the prototypical little guy. He's the guy that coaches Little League, that, you know, d- does the civic society at the churches. You know, he's the, the usher. The, the deep roots. Deep roots of civic the society. deep roots that, that keep our civilization. That Mark Levin talks about all the time, that civic society is so important. You know, these associations and clubs that people belong to and, and just the, the Little Leagues and the, and the, and the Rotary Club and the, and the churches. The, there's always the little guy that's there. They're, they're kind of the everyman. And it's, it's their decency and goodness that we predicate the entire system on. And if you look at this system we have today, what they call the post-war rules-based international order, it's really a series from Western Europe to the Gulf Emirates to the, around the South China Sea to Northwest uh, the Pacific up near Japan and Korea. It's a series of capital markets, commercial relationships, trade deals, and an American security guarantee. And this is why our defense bill is a trillion dollars and why we spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year in intelligence apparatus. It's that we pay, we basically underpin that. That's why NATO before Trump got there never really paid for themselves. We basically underwrote most of that. In the Gulf Emirates, we still provide, you know, they pay for some of it. We still provide, as you know, you've been in Iraq, extraordinary military and intelligence support. In the South China Sea, where I was stationed as a young man on a destroyer, we, we, we still... You know, we still patrol that and keep that free as the, the most important waterway in the world. And up in the Northwest Pacific, in Japan and North in Korea, we keep a, basically an army in the Korea. So around the globe, the deplorables basically write the taxes, and it's all— And the, it's not just the money. It's, no, it's kids. They're away from their children. They're, well, away, they're, 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 they're getting divorced because they're, they're married. I mean, they're, these are real they're, human they're, costs they're, to Their children are on— uh, in uh, uh, near the Ukraine on the border and in Eastern Europe. They're in— uh, the 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 uh, Gulf Emirates. They're they're on patrol in the Hindu Kush today, as we speak. They're on ships and on patrol in the South China Sea, and they're the thirty eighth parallel. So the the deplorables who basically the whole system rests upon, right? It's on their shoulders to pay the taxes, and that their children are really the cannon fodder that go do that. Now, look, I'm a patriot. My daughter's a West Point grad. She served in, in the hundred first. I've got. Other nephews. Your, your, your daughter served in Iraq. Yes, yeah, served in my, Iraq. My son fought in Syria and Iraq. Yeah. These neoliberals and neoconservatives don't have... I opposed the invasion of Iraq. So did I. And yet our children served. I had a nephew. I had nephews the there. I had, it's, it's, look, because it's for the country, right? Yeah. And the country calls them. Now, I do think this is the thing of Trump. In four years, we haven't had any, not just any shooting war. We haven't had any really deployment of... Uh, You've done. You've taken down ISIS by using guys in the region, and us as a coordinating effort, right? And and, uh, and so the America first is not America isolated. It's America more engaged. I can say this as a naval officer: we're more engaged in the Pacific than we've ever been, even under President Reagan. We're more engaged in the South China Sea, keeping that waterway with free navigation for our allies and for our own economy than we ever had. So this is a a misnomer put out by particularly Biden, this neoliberal neocon, which is rejected. That's the establishment's point of view. That is a what I call the party of Davos business model. Remember, it all relates around the slave labor of China. The slave labor of China is what drives the system. And that, all the manufacturing has gone over there. What the Chinese Communist Party has today through their state-owned industries, they export deflation and overcapacity, which Wall Street likes. It keeps wages down. So the, 
the deplorables, whether in Western Europe or in the United States, you can't get any increases in wages. This is why what Trump did was so heroic with not just having record low unemployment, but actually having 10 and 11 percent wage growth among blue collar workers and non management workers that this is extraordinary because the way the system is now is to keep wages down. Right. And you do that by having basically working class folks in the United States that are at the receiving end of the overcapacity of the Chinese Communist Party's factories. And with the deflation they did, you can't raise prices. And and the reason that the Chinese people, Lao Beijing, is in revolt in China is that it's slave labor. Right. And you see the high suicide rates at these at these factories. You see the what the Chinese call the 140 million. They actually say Miles Gross says it's 400 million. We call it the hungry ghost of China, the forced abortions. I mean, the, the, I mean, it's something that's never been seen before in human history. And, and the Chinese, when they talk about it, when they come on our show, because every Saturday for the last year, we've tried to have specials re- regarding specifically the Chinese people. And they talk about the hungry ghost of the, the basically forced abortions of the murders of, of what they say 400 million, but at least 140 million principally girls, baby girls, right? Because that's what they want to do. And it's, it's traumatized the Chinese people. It's one of the reasons they want to take down the Chinese Communist Party. You know, my uh, faculty, my, my thesis advisor was Dr. Kate Joe, who wrote this wonderful book on how the farmers changed China and how corruption stopped the Mao's famine. And, but she's still very involved in China, and she brought these Chinese business, these women over from China who were very wealthy. To, they, they wanted to look at investing in films. And they wanted to meet me on a Sunday at this park in Hawaii, this little cafe in Hawaii. I went, and the whole time I was talking to them, they were playing with their phones, and they were, and I didn't want to meet them on a Sunday because I wanted to be with my family. So I was kind of offended. And so I had this one film with a lot of big stars in it. I put it aside. I said, you know what? I don't want to talk to you about that movie. And I had another movie that was an anti-abortion movie. And I said, my goal is to end abortion in the United States and the one-child policy in China. And um, let me, so I pitched them the project. All of a sudden, these women and you've met the, the type, You're very wealthy, you know, immaculately dressed, but very kind of stern, looked up at me, and they all began to cry. And, and as I was pitching the film, they didn't blink. And I said to the women, they all cried and opened up on their forced abortion. Mm. The one woman said to me, she wasn't even, never even had one child, but because her administrative district was out of permits for the year, when she got pregnant at the end of the year, she was forced to have an abortion. The abortion destroyed her fertility. So I said, you're very wealthy, influential women. Your husbands are very powerful men. Couldn't you use bribery to get around it? And she said, we are all on the top of the mountain. So the rules are more strict on us because everyone can see. They, if we were on the middle of the hill, but we're on the top of the mountain, so everyone can see us. So these hungry ghosts are at every level of society. So we're dealing with a whole country where the women and the men because it it makes you effeminate you cannot protect your wife from the state from the most violent incursion um think about 400 million that's our country miles ago says 400 million forced abortions forced abortions i mean it's and they believe you talk to the diaspora they believe that it's one of the reasons that when china is finally free it will take two or three generations like the potato famine. Yeah, to get through the psychological mm-hmm. damage that's been done by the Chinese Communist Party to the Chinese people. And their relationship to their children and their family. Everything. Um, you took it away from you. I want to go back to you. Sure. So when you saw this great injustice against the American working class, and it reminds me when I was 
uh, with you at the convention in 2016, and I was upset that my guy Cruz didn't win. And, and we were arguing at this party. I don't know if you remember. And I said, he's not conservative. And you looked at me. He goes, no. He's for the working man. Black, Mexican, white. He's, it's not about conservative. You said, President Trump is fighting for the, the working guy. When you, you saw this, and that's why you saw him first before I did. When did you realize there was a cost? Like when you said, okay, I'm going to get involved in politics or conservative media, when did it hit you that this is not going to be like other things you did? Uh, well, it, it, immediately when after Andrew passed away and I, I took over uh, Breitbart and the, the attacks came immediately. And I realized that and also in Andrew's death. I mean, Andrew has been so big on Twitter. I can't even go into the cruelty done to Andrew's family after he passed away. Right, the types of things that people said, the type of thing information they got, what they tried to do to the kids, what they did to the widow. I'm sitting there going, "Oh my God, I never knew people could be this evil," and I realized that we we're playing a totally different, something totally different. Andrew had been attacked nonstop, uh, but I was kind of like one of the wingmen, so it never really hit me. Um, but Andrew, that came at full force all the time when he died, that was a wake up call for me for how vicious this is going to be. And clearly, as Breitbart started to rise was- in prominence. Personally, the most loving, kind, oh my God, human you I've ever met. Huge heart, just a just a, a, a magnificent human being, and so uh, engaging and accessible. Oh no, the vicious. I remember he, one of the things on tw- the only fights he and I ever had were about Twitter, because he was on Twitter I think all Twitter the time. Probably p- played a role in him, him dying so young. In a well, way, he no, he he, 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 he up. yeah, he had a you know he had a bad heart. We put him in the hospital for a year before he died for a week, uh, and we tried to you know, with diet and everything like that, and not to get so worked up. But you're right, he was on Twitter 24-7. Um, and actually, I think it was one of the reasons Twitter took off, because he's one of those types of personalities. He was Trump before Trump. He's one of those personalities you have to have. He's on media all the time. And nobody was coming to the site. Before, we were in the process of building the new site, and nobody was coming to I remember to- when you came here. Your developer was in Tice- It was in Virginia. It was in, over in northern Virginia. And, 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 and Andrew it, had this big book, and he was so excited about the new website. He created the whole thing. He was a genius about it. If you see the use of negative space and the colors and all the way it's coordinated and how news flows, that's 100% Andrew Breitbart. I mean, he dedicated his life to launching a modern, you know, and this is why I said he's like an idiot savant. He knew how people came to the news, right? And it was very powerful after all his experiences of Breitbart and Drudge and Huffington Post. He, um, but no, he would continue to retweet. And so not just when we were getting traffic, but all the times he was retweeting, the most hateful things said to him about him. And I go, look, I don't really understand how this Twitter thing works, but why do you retweet all the hate? He goes, that just builds up. It just, it, it, it makes, yeah, no, it makes it. Yeah. I do that now. I mean, I, it's so counterintuitive. He just retweets the hate. He retweets the hate, but the hate was just regular hate. It was demonic what happened after he died because he died as a young man. He had, I, I think, four or five children, uh, all, I, I think, under the age of 11, I think was the oldest child at the time, uh, and a widow. Uh, and they were obviously stunned. It happened out of nowhere. And just the, the demonic hate. And that's where I realized. I said, oh, my Lord, this is going to be something different. But I, I tell people. So in a you, script, that would be where you wanted to quit. That would be where failure of the call. Did you ever have a failure no, of the call? No, or are you no, just like, no, there was no failure of the call no, in this? No, but it's, We'd have to invent it's, it in it's, your movie. It's, 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 it's also you understand that if you're going to do this, you're going to get, you're going to get, you know, you're going to, they're going to come at you to destroy you. And I keep telling people, if you're over the target, They'll be coming at you. If you're not over the target, they won't. Like the, the epic. Yeah, 60 ton- Gunners had a life expectancy of seven seconds. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Epic, Epic Times. Epic Times got attacked by Rachel Maddow and NBC and the New York Times. Have had all these investigative pieces. I keep telling them because they're like these really nice Chinese people, and they're all upset about. it. I said, no, 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 no. This is a good thing. I said, this is what they did to Andrew Breitbart. When you start becoming more relevant, they start attacking you more. So just so you just, just you know it's coming. It's coming. You're, you're it's thinking coming. five moves ahead. You know. And by the way, think about thinking about five moves ahead. I was listening to you leading up to the election. This is not a surprise to you. No, I, it's the reason you I, saw this all coming. It's the reason I didn't go back in the campaign in June when a bunch of donors reached out to me. I said, look, the campaign, Pestepian's a great ground game. You get Jason. We had three guys from the war room. Went there. Our guy, Greg Manns, went with uh, Jason Miller, my co-host, and, and Steve Cortez. And I said, you got a great team there. I said, this, 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 it's not just winning the initial, you got to hold the wind. And I said, they're coming at you with legal. They're going to come at you with uh, social media and mainstream media. And they're going to come after you with street on the street. Uh, in addition, there's going to be stuff like the hard drive from hell that will pop up. They'll have to be properly weaponized. So, no, we've been preaching this on the show now for three or four months that this was going to happen. It's one of the reasons it's not a criticism, observation. The campaign was a little slow to react to this. And I think it's one of the reasons that we're now over a week and, and lawsuits are being filed. Things are being aggressive. In it, like I, my recommendation to the president was on the evening of the third at ten between ten and eleven o'clock, and I said this for weeks, like at ten forty-five, right before the eleven o'clock news, go claim your victory. He'd won Ohio, he'd won Florida in a historic win. He had eight hundred thousand vote lead in Pennsylvania, hundreds of thousands of vote leads in Michigan and Wisconsin. No, it's, Stun- uh, it's, uh, stunning. And a huge win in Iowa, and Joni Ernst going to win by seven points, leading in North Carolina and Georgia, right? Just go out and claim the win right there. And I would actually go into court and get injunctions and say, we don't want any nonsense overnight. For a host of reasons, I think they waited till 2.30 in the morning to have thing, and then didn't. And then they went to bed, and you wake up at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, and it's totally reversed. It was so Orwellian. To, uh, to, uh, and, and you see that in Michigan, 140,000 votes and no Trump votes. About It's so blatant. And this is why I think so powerful about the uh, 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 about some of these statements that are coming out now, right? And, uh, and, 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 and it's so powerful that you can see what the lie is. The deplorables right? were ahead of the campaign. Oh, big time. The truck drivers, the man on the no, street, no the spontaneous drivers. We only, got, we only have two minutes. I could talk yeah. to you forever. Yeah. On your show earlier today, we talked, this is the fight. People want to know what, what where are we going to? We're going, we're, we won on November third, and we're going to hold this win. Are we going to in, hold this win in, in the courts? I tell you, I think you're going to have a catech. Remember, it's all about certifying this vote. I don't think they'll ever be able to get to certified. I think we'll go to the Supreme Court about the process. It'll get kicked back to the states. I don't think they'll be able to certify December eighth as a safe harbor. If it's not done by December eighth, that means it essentially gets tossed. You don't. The electoral college doesn't meet in. Uh, on December 14th at the state capitals, it gets kicked into the House of Representatives. We ha- and it, you vote by state delegation. The House elects the president. The Senate elects the vice president. This has happened twice before in American history. In 1800s, the way Thomas yeah. Jefferson became president. And in 1876, it's happened twice before in American history. This is going to get, I believe, right now, as I see it, kicked into the House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi will preside where Donald Trump will win 28 to 22. We control 28 uh, state party delegations in the House. The Democrats control 22 uh, and in the Senate, subject to what happens in January in Georgia, uh, Mike Pence will be uh, elected uh, vice president. And that'll I believe that'll happen the evening before there'll be a huge fight. But the evening before the 20th of January of 2021, 
they'll have a vote and President Trump will win. So, and they'll do the inauguration the next day. I don't believe the inauguration will be your traditional inauguration at the Capitol with huge festivities. I believe it will take place at the White House, but a win's a win, right? And right now, this is everything. One thing I advocate to the White House is, hey, you won. Start acting like you won. You've got an 80-day bonus period on your second term. Let's use it, right? Let's fire Fauci. Let's fire Collins over at NIH. Let's fire Ray at the FBI. Start your second term right now. Make your changes. And so I think that that is, I think you're going to start seeing the president do that in the next couple of days. And what are our orders? I got to wrap this up. So what should we be doing? First off, first off, you're doing what what, what you're doing is just a guy like you should just continue to create more content and reach a broader audience. Everybody out in your audience should say, be a force multiplier on pushing out everything on social media and you can do. They're trying to shut us down everywhere, trying to shut you down. (coughs) Excuse me, trying to shut down everybody in the Trump movement. Be a force multiplier. Just get, remember, we're going through a great awakening, right? 71 million people voted for President Trump. You saw these spontaneous events with the 96-mile caravan in in Arizona to the 30,000 anti-communist demonstration down in in protest in South Florida. There's a great awakening. The way you participate in that great awakening is learn as much as you can, absorb as much content as you can, and push that content out. Make sure your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, everybody gets access to it. That's your responsibility as a force multiplier. In addition, actively engage, whether it's at a community level or whatever level in the Trump revolution from an electoral point of view and what you can do in your engagement in civic society. This is all about action. I tell people, put your hobbies away. Put this, this to me, should almost be a calling, right? You've got a certain time in life that it's all about human agency in this period of time that you're here. Let divine providence flow through you and put your shoulder to the wheel. And now's the time to actively participate. Remember, small cadres of people can do tremendous things. And that's what I think you're seeing in the Trump movement right now. There's not going to be any back down on yeah, We're not backing down. We're not backing down. They're figure, are they figuring that out yet? Have they got the I, that, This is why Graham Allison's thing is so important today in the national interest. He's one of the great intellectuals of the establishment. He's seen, he understands what the playbook is. He's now saying it's a 20% chance, but he's put together the intellectual framework that they can now understand that we're coming with them and we will never back down. And the cost might be too President high. Trump, President Trump either claims and holds his victory on the 3rd or it's stolen from him. There's no other alternative. And I think his followers in the courts, uh, in the way the system works, will not allow it to be stolen because we're going to put our shoulder to the wheel and, and refuse to have it stolen. So I've been saying on this show that if I could take a time machine to any point in the history of our great republic to serve, it would be to right now. Right now. This is this, this is the, is four, it, right? this is the this fourth is turning. It. Everybody's a history buff and loves it. It says, oh, the, the revolution, the Civil War, the Great Depression, World War II. If I was there, I would be at Valley Forge. If I was there, I would be at Gettysburg. If I was there, I would be at Normandy. Well, hey, you're here. This is as big an inflection point as the revolution, as the Civil War, as the World War II. This happens about every 80 to 100 years in our republic in this kind of cycle. And it, every time we've made the right decision and taken the country to the next level, remember the people that were there at the time, they'd say that Trump's not a uniter. The political leaders at the time were disruptors. Lincoln was a disruptor. He was a divider. He was an absolute divider. He had to fight a civil war to actually then unite the country and take it to the next level. Just like FDR at the time was considered a divider. It's only like Reagan and winning the Cold War was considered a very divisive f- figure. It's only in the in the retrospect of time 
do they look like they were uniters? Because they what they that did is anti fragility. That the exactly, principle of and they took and they took the and they took the country to the next level. That is the exact system we're in today. That's why you've got to commit. If you commit, we're going to close on the victory. There's never been more to say for our posterity, as you said in your show, which startled me. This is the most important election in the history of China. Most important election in five thousand years. The Chinese know that. The diaspora. I do the. I have Chinese on all the time. I we do specials every Saturday. Uh, you can ask your wife. In five thousand years, this is the beginning of democracy in China. They're seeing it in the United States in all of its shaggy, imperfect. Democracy is very imperfect, and we've been at this for a long time, from Athens to Roman Republic. And what a to the Magna Carta. We are knitted Pros. together with that. N- yeah, yes. And it's we are for, knitted yeah, together with that. From time immemorial, Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome is what unites the Judeo-Christian West. We've been a, a beacon of hope for the rest of the world, and that's what we got to do today. And the way we do that is closing this election. Well, brother, I'm stealing time from your team. Thank you for your friendship no. and uh, your example, Steve. Cool. And if you're going around the next couple of days, when are you taking off? Um, I have to you're leave for, for se- I leave for I'm here for a meeting and I leave Saturday. All right, thank you, Steve. But listen, we also want to get you on the show with the Colin. I'd love to come on, Steve. Thank you. Right, God bless you. Everybody, what a privilege to have Steve Steve Bannon on. And you you heard him say that. This when he said that on the war room, it was startling to me. This is the most important election for China. This is the most important election from Bangladesh to South Africa. If we let Joe Biden steal this election, there will be a famine like you have never seen. I predict half a billion people will starve if we shut down, if we, if we shut down our economy, food production, processing, and distribution, you will see famine erupt across the globe. Those Uyghur concentration camps will become death camps. If we save this election that we won, those camps will close. Those people will be free. From Bangladesh to South Africa, we'll have food security. And I know what you're thinking. This is about our family. This is about our families too. But it's not just about me and you. It is about our children and grandchildren. What a privilege to live today. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, like Steve said, I would run around in the woods with my friends with their wooden rifles and our helmets. And I would think, why wasn't I alive during the American Revolution? Why couldn't I live during the Civil War? Why couldn't I be as privileged as my grandfather to land at Normandy? This is our great opportunity. And maybe, and I pray it's like the Glorious Revolution. The Glorious Revolution was a mostly peaceful revolution. That glorious revolution in England that reaffirmed the commitment in the English-speaking world to the dignity of the human person and freedom, those were the grandparents of the founding fathers. And so when you look at the American Bill of Rights, of course, it goes right back to the English Bill of Rights from three generations before our founders. So I pray for a revolution like the glorious revolution a peaceful revolution, and a recommitment to human dignity, a recommitment to freedom, freedom of speech, and um, what a great time to be alive. I, I have to get going. I wish I could have, I could have interviewed Steve for hours. We're going to get him back on the show. Uh, this has been another episode of The Jason Jones Show, brought to you by Movie to Movement. Go to our website, movie2movement.com, and check out our new movie, Divided Hearts of America, starring Benjamin Watson. This film looks at the causes of division in this country and the secret that will unite us. Most of you aren't going to go get my movie, so I'm just going to tell you the secret. The secret is we live up to our founding principle. 
We acknowledge the dignity and beauty of our human person. And from that, of course, extends all of our liberties. And we are also sponsored by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world, from the child in the womb to the Uyghur and Chinese-occupied East Turkestan. Go to uh, thegreatcampaign.org. And you heard Steve say that it was our organization that really, um, and I'm not going to agree with him on that. I think we did what we could. I'm not going to go as far as Steve to say we even had a dominant role. But I will say this. It has been a privilege for us to advance the interests of stateless ethnic and religious minorities from the Christians in the Nuba Mountains to the Muslims and Chinese-occupied East Turkestan. It has been a privilege for us to advance the interests of the most vulnerable people in the world. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Of a donation of $20 or more, you get a free copy of my book, The Race to Save Our Century, on how we can prevent the 21st century um, from being a century of genocides, democides, and total war uh, like the 20th century. All right? So until next time... From an undisclosed location in Washington, D.C., Stephen K. Bannon's The War Room. It's the Jason Jones Show. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media.